the Matildas and Billion Dollar Barbie recasting the role of girls, ACTU price gouging inquiry, Dutton diverted community safety funds and let home affairs run loose, and good news about quolls. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me, as always, is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and on, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, and the interviewer of Miles Taylor, Trump administration whistleblower, my wife, your friend, and the current holder of Germanicus... <laughs> Van Badham, how are you, Van? It's good to be back, Ben, uh, especially given I'm being squashed into this chair by this dog who has decided to lick everything. Please be aware it is the dog and not us. Yeah, there might be some weird licking noises in this episode. But, Van, your uh, first of your Van in Conversation series episodes came out last week. It was a huge success. You spoke with Miles Taylor. Anyone who hasn't listened to it, I'd be surprised if there's anyone listening to this episode who hasn't. But if you haven't, go back and check it out because it was a really fascinating conversation. It was. It was a great conversation. And I don't think somebody like Miles Taylor ever thought that he'd be having chats with somebody like me, given the fact he's, you know, politically profiled as the kind of person we in Australia would refer to as a neocon, former Republican, you know, went mm. off to work for George Bush. And we had a fantastic conversation, me as a Labor voting Democratic Socialist of, of some commitment about democracy and why we believe in democracy and the, the different paths of principle that commit us to that cause, which, of course, in his case, led him to endanger his own life by blowing the whistle on the Trump administration. It's an amazing interview. And if you did listen to the interview, I cannot recommend his book Blowback enough. It is such a cracker of a tale and all true and terrifying for that reason. But also I'm very excited about doing more interviews with people and we have had some suggestions from our audience about people who they would like us to consider interviewing. And certainly if you're working in PR and you represent anybody who I might find a bit interesting and have stuff to talk about, do contact the show because we are looking for interesting, uh, an interesting, interesting, interesting. I'm going to keep repeating the word interesting. People I find interesting. No, it doesn't necessarily mean people I agree with, but certainly people I find interesting yeah. people to interview. Yeah, so you can contact us at the week on Wednesday at gmail.com uh, and, of course, through our social media channels. We are on all of the platforms. Please all of the time. Let there be no more new platforms. Uh, but, Van, talking about platforms, what a huge platform the Women's World Cup has been here in Australia and, of course, New Zealand. I shouldn't forget our cousins over the ditch. Of which I am, of course, a dual <laughs> citizen. No, we shouldn't. And when we talk about our cousins over the ditch, in my case, it is literal. But, of course, the Matildas uh, have made it to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, this this and, and you wrote an article in The Guardian about – uh, about this uh, and about the Barbie movie. But I just, before we get into the detailed discussion, I just want to give people some quite mind-boggling numbers. So 6.54 million Australians watched the Matildas play Denmark 
uh, on uh, Monday night. Um, by comparison, the highest rating news show that night, which was also on Channel Seven, so leading into the into the match, had less than a million viewers, and was also beaten by the pregame show. So there were people who did not watch Channel Seven news, but turned on to watch the pregame show of the Matildas match. That was and then the dog. Even more people tuned in to watch the match itself. I mean, it's breaking all sorts of records, Van. I mean, the, the matches themselves, the last two matches in particular. Have been electric. Oh, phenomenal. Phenomenal Just phenomenal of football. football. Yeah. Ben, you are the former active footballer mm. in, and so, Mesley, certainly you're still playing football. <laughs> Tell us why the games have been so amazing. I think the games have been so amazing because the the women's game is fully professional. They, they are, and, and this is a huge credit, can I just say, to the Matildas and the Players Association uh, who stood together to make sure that there was professionalism in the game and that women were paid appropriately. I mean, this goes to show whether you're a professional footballer or stocking shelves at Coles uh, or working in fast food or working in a hospital, you need to be a union member, right? So australianunions.org.au slash wow, join your union. The the quality of the football in the last two games in particular has been absolutely world-class. You know, the tactical nous, the the physicality, uh, the passing. I mean, Mary Fowler's uh, assist for Ford's opener uh, against Denmark was just world-class. It's the kind of thing that, you know, I watch videos, when I watch videos on TikTok or on the internet, I tend to watch, you know, classic 90s football and I watch Zinedine Zidane and Andrea Perlo and these sorts of players and absolutely Mary Fowler's pass was, would be totally uh, totally uh, at home among those sorts of video clips. And and quite frankly, it it's because those players uh, are absolutely stepping up to the challenge of being professional sports people, and 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 because the, they're paid properly, they yeah. get the respect and the protection of professionalism. It's almost like Ben, if you show people the respect of paying them what they believe they are worth and providing safe and supported conditions for them to work in. Well, they're incredibly productive in sky's limit on what they can achieve. I mean, it's crazy, right? And, and, and I, I want to point out too, I think Craig Foster and Francis Waratifi, who, who are both um, former Socceroos. And uh, brilliant human beings. And and very active on social media. I think they've both made the point that, you know, um, Rasso is the first Australian. This is Hayley Rasso. Who scored, uh, has now scored three goals in the last two games, I believe. Um, uh has the first Australian uh, to ever play for Real Madrid. Now, if you're not a diehard football fanatic as I am, you may not understand the depth of that. And I think in Australia, because we there are we are not also the dog. Well, we are part of the world game. We are not as enmeshed in it as some other parts of the world are. That that has not really registered as it should. To go from Man City itself now a very large club with very large financial resources to Real Madrid, the the record holder for European Champions Leagues, one of the most successful clubs in the history of football, uh, 
one of the most proud clubs in the history of football. They don't buy players or sign players from other countries who are just a bit all right. They are looking for the best players in the world at the peak of their powers to come in, whether it's for their men's team, their women's team, whatever level, to, to help them win titles and win championships. So it's a phenomenal thing. And it just, you know, I mean, I've always uh, thought of myself as supporting the Matildas and supporting um, uh, the women's game in Australia. I mean, that's why I married you. But I have to say, even from my perspective, the, the step up uh, in interest and the, and the step up in performance has been phenomenal to see. And I think it shows, you know, almost every single one of those players on the field plays for a big club, not, and this is no no disrespect to the Socceroos because I know uh, the Socceroos have done their very best, and all of those players are, are making their way in their careers. Um, but you hear names like Arsenal, Man City, Chelsea, Real Madrid, uh, Lyon, which is w- one of the uh, French teams which has won the uh, women's European title a number of times mentioned around Australian players and the clubs they play for, you don't hear that in the men's game. And the men's game gets a lot of attention, you know, and I think we need to be paying more attention to the fact that we have in this country uh, women playing at the very highest level and what an inspiration, you know, 75,000 in the stands, millions of people watching at home. I mean, you and I have seen the photos of some of our friends at some of these games, you know, Sally McManus, Will Strack, other unionists, uh, feminists who are just delirious with joy. And you can see why. I'm delirious with joy. I mean, this is the thing, like, and I've made this point, I made this point in my article and in various interviews I've given about it. The There is a whole generation of girls who can now see themselves in the game and the more, and it's the world game. Yeah. Like the, the sense of belonging that you can have to that game as a man because it represents every country on earth and every culture on earth. Everyone understands football. You you only have to watch one game of football. You may not get the offside reel immediately, but you'll get most of it to understand the beauty of the game and that it is simple to understand and incredibly complex to be exceptional at and these, these moments that you can appreciate as a spectator, like that Mary Fowler assist, which was just totally amazing, and Caelan Ford down the side, incredible goal. Like these these moments that you understand while you are seeing them why they are amazing. Mm. And now that girls can see themselves in the game, it is a truly global game. Every single person can see themselves in the game. And the point that you made in your article about, about Gori as well. So this know, is Katrina Gori who's the midfielder. The, that kind of robustness, the the hardness in the tackle, the focus on the ball, the you know, the being fouled but getting up, the the making of a professional foul. Like you know, you're seeing Australian players play professionally. And and that's really I think even even better than the men, quite frankly. Not just in Australia, but I think, you know, you don't see rolling around on the floor pretending to be hurt in this World Cup. Not even is, from the Italian team. Which is really fantastic. You know, um, Gori was in a moon boot after the game against Canada. 
but that dedication, that hardness at the ball. I mean, you, you love to see it on the sporting field. And there's no reason why um, that can't be part of the women's game because it's it's fair, it's sports-like. That's, I mean, it's really, I loved watching Roy Keane and Patrick Vieira go at it in the 90s, you know, that those hard tackles, those hard but fair approach to football and to see someone in the green and gold play that way is just absolutely warms my heart. And to go, that's a Matilda and that's going to help get us to the round of 16, now the quarterfinals, hopefully the semis, hopefully we go all the way. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just in love with the whole game again. Oh, it's just, it's amazing. It's just amazing. And in my article I was writing about, you know, the fact that, of course, there were famous women's sports people mm. when I was a kid. I mean, I grew up in a sport-mad household and, you know, some of the most beautiful moments of our life together as a family were around sport. We would go and watch sport. We would go to the cricket. We would go to the tennis. We would go and watch, you know, like two men kick a ball in a park on a weekend. You know, if if sport wasn't on TV, we were listening to it. And on the radio, I was enthralled by it. You know, my dad always used to say, the best writing's always in the sports pages, Vanessa. And, I mean, we could argue the literary merit of that. But my dad had such a a passionate involvement in sport and it was was so – it was the great opera of our lives as our family and our broader family and our community and the kind of culture that I grew up in where sport was everything. And, you know, these incredible moments of theatre and drama and joy and ambition and excitement, you know, and aspiration just so powerful. And that was also the dog. Uh, and the idea that that has been democratised mm. and that the experience that women are having watching sport now that they can see women in is is women sports people not having to apologise for being women or enact some kind of compensatory feminine performance. Like finally, culturally, we're allowed to celebrate women being physically tough Mm. and physically strong and physically fit and not having to do a twirl. I mean, I remember I read a Guardian article about this a few years ago, like that appalling incident at the Australian Open where top flight Mm. international Mm. women's tennis player was asked to do a twirl. Mm. I, I've blocked out of her name because I don't. I'm, I think psychologically, I don't want her to bear that shame of yeah. that commentator's behaviour. But also, when I was a kid, you know, the the women who were breaking through into the public consciousness, people like Nadia Comaneci, the amazing Romanian gymnast, yeah. were really there was this narrative that you had to be. Like it was all right if you were good at sport, if you were also feminine and her pigtails and her ribbons and her little hand flicks Mm. were so much a part of the way that she was covered. Like, oh, she might be a really good gymnast, but she's still a really pretty girl. And the the way that sort of narrative around Chris Evert, the tennis player, and you saw it with like Anna Kornikova and, you know, Mm. this weird fetishization of female tennis players and, also, like even somebody like Florence Griffith Joyner, who's like one of the most extraordinary athletes ever, mm. this absolute flying train of woman whose nail art and hairstyles. And it was interesting. I found a, a website that 
that uh, um, followed the career of Florence Griffith Joyner. She was like a great American mm. um, track and field Flo athlete. Flojo, yeah. yeah. And you could see her, the evolution of her public presentation becoming more and more feminised over the years, like more consciously about hair and makeup and nails and outfits and the rest of it. And, like, literally no problem for me. However you want to express your glamour. Mm. If Serena Williams wants to wear a tutu, she can wear a tutu. Great. I am 100%. Pro the tutu. Yeah. Similarly, if you want to wear shorts, you should be able to wear shorts. But it was very much this, hey, you know, I might be strong or fast or tough or disciplined or, or a winner or competitive, but I'm also girly. Like that that mm. was really a part. And it's interesting, like I watched a documentary about Billie Jean King who really took one for the team with her career, I've got to say, one of my favourite athletes ever. Um that Billie Jean King, the tennis player, when she participated in that Battle of the Sexes game against Bobby Sands, and there's that movie that yeah. um, uh, that actress Emma Stone, who yes. I really like, is in. But it's sort of that movie contrasts Billie Jean King doing that with Margaret Court, the infamous, yeah. infamous homophobe yeah. Australian Margaret Court, very successful tennis player in mm. her time. Let us not take the sporting achievement away from her. But certainly uh, Margaret Court, very invested in the feminine performance, as I think we've seen mm. throughout her life now and her post-tennis appearances. Absolutely. Very, very much from the gender binary police um, and, the, you know, the feminising nonsense. But she, got, she did a battle of the sexes with Bobby Sands and he beat her and she was supposed to be... You know, she was the great female tennis player of her generation, but it was all very coy and skirts and not embracing the opportunity to be tough and hard. Mm. And the fact that that's sport and that's what sport's about and it's good. It's an amazing inspiration to people to be like that. And the fact that Billie Jean King did beat him, like did, and she beat him the way she knew how. She Mm. analysed his game. She exhausted him. She played strategically. And we're seeing more of that. And it's just, it's, it's, I wrote my article because I felt such envy of the young girls who are seeing these these role models, these imaginative heroes of women who go out and play the hardest that they can, take a kicking, get up, keep playing, have ambition, be competitive. Like all of the, the qualities that we, have culturally encouraged in men because they're the qualities you need to survive and to thrive and to endure life were somehow qualities we wanted to discourage or take away from women. And and I'm so envious just watching the little girls on TV see themselves and go, yeah, I could do that. Well, it's, it's interesting um, hearing you say that because uh, Marta, who uh, plays for... Praise be upon her name. Plays for Brazil, uh, one of the greatest players to ever play the game. Uh, Brazil, of course, knocked out early in this World Cup. Uh, Marta was asked about this. You know, does what does this mean for Brazilian football? Does this mean uh, that Brazilian football is falling behind? If you haven't seen uh, the video, she she talks about it in Portuguese, obviously, because she's Brazilian, but there are um, subtitled versions available. Uh, she talks about exactly this, that when she was coming through, there was no one to look up to. There were maybe athletes in other sports like tennis, but there, there, wasn't, uh, there wasn't this 
professionalism in football. There weren't these uh, uh, figures to aspire to be. And herself, and she doesn't mention Megan Rapinoe, but Megan Rapinoe is another one from the USA. Who, as you well know, I adore. I adore her. So, you know, again, the USA uh, is out. Uh, These are two former powerhouses of the women's world game. Uh, And Marta makes the point, you know, that – She's proud to have been part of blazing a trail and now the rest of the world is catching up and the rest of the world is trying to get to that level and, in fact, getting beyond the level where Brazil and maybe the USA were at. Uh, And that's a great thing. Yeah, there's been a lot of writing about this that, I mean, the United States enjoyed football supremacy in the women's game because they were ahead of it. And they they put the money in and they had a system that was encouraging players. Is that what it's called where they've got to fund men's and women's sport the same? I believe so. I believe I would love more information. Yeah, if people know more, send that through. But, you know, there were opportunities for women to get education through football scholarships and a structural encouragement of the game, which meant the Americans had a pool of women athletes who were encouraged, inspired, had structural incentives to engage in the game, and they were dominant, Mm. like absolutely Mm. dominant. Megan Rapinoe is one of the greatest athletes alive. Mm. She's amazing, and not to mention an extraordinary entertainer, and I use that deliberately after her incredible, like, tribute to Russell Crowe in the football field, like mimicking Gladiator, are you not entertained? Like, what an absolute legend. And she went up against Trump and she showed solidarity with Colin Kaepernick and she would not bow before Trump. And he's been on Twitter this week going, oh, well, no wonder they lost because they're so woke. And it's like, where's your Olympic medal, son? Like, where are your three world championships? You know, like, it's just an absolute, what an icon. What an absolute icon of the game. Mm. And there are so many. And this is the thing, there are so many. Like, the names that that you remember because you've seen them, because they've been extraordinary. The cultural power of that. You know, one of the best things I saw was on Facebook. A friend of mine was like, my nephew just asked me what boy Matildas are called. And it was just like, what's happening is rather than this weird gender segregation where girls have to imagine themselves, you know, into into a sport that's entirely represented by boys, how about this, that boys and girls can see themselves in boys and girls, that you can actually connect as a boy to the amazing triumph of what the women are doing. And you can connect as a girl to what the men are doing because you've seen people like you do it in the women's game. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And look, you know, Van, it's um, from from my perspective as a as a frustrated and failed footballer to, to see the Matildas out there being so successful. You do, and I do, you know, you've seen me just about jump off the couch screaming with joy and and cl- calling for free kicks and yellow cards. Just it's such a joy to watch and to feel part of and to see those numbers, those television viewer numbers, to hear those conversations going on shows that Australia uh, is really embracing it. And I hope that, that we don't lose the opportunity to continue to do that. And I think the timing of the World Cup and the Barbie movie, while probably totally coincidental, have actually reinforced this because the Barbie movie is now the first uh, film 
directed solo by a woman, Greta Gerwig, to break a billion dollars at the box office. Not only that, and there's been a lot of focus on that, you know, first um, film directed by a woman to break a billion dollars, and that is a big deal. But it's also just by the solo way. Solo directed because fr- the Frozen movies made over a billion dollars and they were co-directed by a woman. Co-directed, yeah, but solo directed. Um, uh, but not only that, it's the fastest billion-dollar movie for Warner Brothers uh, in its history. Made a billion dollars in 17 days. Yeah. So this is a massive triumph. Oh, and it is. It is a triumph. It's a great movie. It's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant movie. It's thoroughly entertaining. And, I mean, I wrote about this in my article as well. Like, I went to see the Barbie movie with my girl gang, so I have a girl gang. Everyone should have a girl gang, you know. And we dressed up, all apart from Donna, who's a nonconformist, but bless her, don't change Donna. We love you the way you are. And we, so we all wore pink and I wore my pink jumpsuit and big pink coat. Oh, it was great. My friend Heather looked like a princess. It was great. And we had such a good time. Like we got the gold class tickets and I had nacho, I had a hot dog, the whole thing. And it made me realise watching it and the whole audience, there were like two men in there, Mm. were women who were also with their girl gangs or with their daughters or their sisters and having a good time and being raucous. And, and behaving the way that women behave with women. And in my article, this is what I really identify, like I identified around the Matildas and just thinking thinking about my childhood now that my mother's gone and trying to work out, you know, like the, you know, I'm doing a lot of thinking about mm. the past, obviously, because I'm grieving and trying to keep my mother and father alive in my memory. And I was thinking about how there's such a perverse narrative about what girls are, and I use the sugar and spice and everything nice mm. nonsense and the gingham frocks and the ribbons, and I love ribbons, as well, you know, because yeah. they're in every cupboard of the house and tie them to everything. But it was just that whole notion of girls are taught to be a very different thing in mixed company, less and less so I'd like to point out, but mm. certainly girls of my generation mm. were taught to to be a different person when you were when you are outside the house when you're in mixed company you know when you're meeting boys socially when you're engaging mm-hmm. with men whether it's in a workplace or anywhere else than who you are when you're on your own or who you are when you're with your friends girls are authentically themselves when they're with other girls and anybody thinking girls are sugar and spice and everything nice maybe you should go undercover at an all girls school for a year and see what goes on I went my first high school was an all girls school I don't know about it, it was quite traumatic but one of the things um, and it was state school one of the things about it was that you know we were ourselves very successful academically that Mm. my first high school because it wasn't that crazy pressure to pretend you were stupid or you know the things that used to happen where girls used to dumb down because it was you know you Mm. wouldn't want to outperform the boys god help you you know the worst thing you could ever do was you know like dent a boy's ego and what around the Barbie movie, we're back in that space looking at a, a shared object of our girlhoods, going with other women who also had girlhoods and and being ourselves again and engaging in that raucousness that, that characterises all children, you know, being vulgar and disgusting, which is, you know, the characteristics that define all teenagers, yeah. except that we pretend that teenage behaviour is 
or have pretended in previous generations that teenage behaviour is exclusively the preserve of boys and girls are doing something different and that childish behaviour of getting dirty and making mud pies and climbing mountains and, you know, like climbing trees and skidding knees and all of those things that happen are things that only happen to boys. They're universal experiences. And it just feels like around the Barbie movie, thinking about childhood, thinking about these ridiculous gendered performances, and the triumph of that movie is Barbie acknowledging that she finds it exhausting to be Barbie. Barbie struggles with being Barbie because it's performing all the time. And and we we are at this cultural moment where I think it's actually happening. Like the decades of feminists chipping away, chipping away, you know, creating cultural spaces, creating cultural models, creating educational opportunities and workplace opportunities for someone who's brilliant as get a gooey to get the opportunity to direct a big budget movie. You know, that took work, that took arguments, that took campaigns, that took absolute struggle and it took solidarity and collective action, women working together to support one another and finding allies around men who went, you know, maybe we should be promoting the people who have the talent. Maybe we should tear down the bigotries and actually let people in who are good at this, who can make good products, who can create good experiences, who can play good football, who can direct good movies. You know, it's it's exciting. I mean, it's it's sort of – I have this weird feeling of, of sort of this envy and this regret and I talk about in my article a nostalgia for things that never happened, like what would my life be like if I was – I, if I had grown up with the same cultural messaging mm. that that girls are exposed to now, would I be different? Would I be doing something differently? But also it makes me acknowledge the work of my feminist foremothers and my feminist parents because my dad was a feminist too, mm. working class, organic feminist, my parents, you know, who encouraged me to pursue the things that were important to me, you know, that to, to follow my vocation. And I just think... It feels like the beginning of a better world. Like it's going to be bigger. The community of people living authentic lives is going to be bigger, and it's going to be good for all of us. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more, Van. Um, it's it's an exciting time, and it's interesting to see. And uh, hopefully, we'll see more of it. I'm sure we will. I'm absolutely certain that we will uh, go on leaps and bounds from here. I want to change track a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. Uh, While well, the dog makes quite the ambitious <laughs> leap from my lap to yours, I know, I know. He's being very annoying. Um, but I do want to talk about some economic issues because um, a billion-dollar film is great, uh, but, of course, we know there are still cost-of-living pressures going on. We talk about the economy a lot on The Week on Wednesday, Uh and while movies are a good distraction and football is a, a wonderful distraction. Football is life. Football is life. Football is life. Um, the reality is that there are still price pressures. There are still profiteers. There is still gouging going on. You only need to look at the fact uh, that the Commonwealth Bank declared a $10 billion profit uh, just today to realise that there are some people getting very, very wealthy of what is supposed to be uh, the shared pain of inflation mm, and trying to reduce pain. inflation. So much easier to share pain if your share of it is $10 billion. Yeah, well, that's right. And, of course. What's their CEO on? Uh, he, well, he's doubled his salary. I can't remember what the dollar amount is now, but uh, he did get a uh, he did get a significant pay bump. Um 
at the same planet time, of his own. At the same time as letting go a couple of hundred staff because of uncertain economic conditions. Oh, I hate economic uncertainty if, you know, I did $10 billion profit-making business when I get my salary doubled. Well, I mean, the, obviously you should fire some people. Really share the pain. Well, this is this is why I think the ACTU's price-gouging inquiry. So this is I the, love it. the Australian Council of Trade Unions has engaged Alan Fells, who is the former uh, head of the Australian Competition and Consumer uh, Commission, to look into uh, the extent, and this is from the, the website, the extent of price gouging facing working people on essential items, the disproportionate effect experienced by cohorts of workers and vulnerable groups, and the effect of price gouging on the safety and mental health of workers providing essential goods and services. Because we have all felt that frustration when the price of something has gone up. And unfortunately, we have probably all witnessed somebody losing it at the worker who's only only there doing exactly what their boss has told them to do. I think this is incredibly important. You know, you can actually participate in this. This is a this is a genuine inquiry run by a very esteemed economist, uh, former appointee by multiple governments of multiple stripes to these sorts of economic inquiries. Uh, you can go to pricegougingingquiry.actu.org.au. I love it. And you can put in there your, uh, tell your story about experiencing price gouging. We know this is real, right? And we've known this and we've been talking about this on the show for months now, you know, right back since in March, the Australian Institute found company profits was driving inflation. They were they were saying 69% of inflation. Ben, sharing the pain. Well, there has been very little sharing of the pain. And this is, I think, the point of, of this inquiry is to look at how it is that there are companies making such large profits, in some cases record profits, when they are in highly concentrated markets. That means there's very little competition when they are providing essential goods and services. So we're talking fuel, we're talking food. Uh, We may well be talking, in some cases, accommodation. Uh, You know, these are fundamentally part of just functioning as a nation. Sally McManus, the Secretary of the ACTU, good comrade, says... The impacts of the cost of purchasing our most basic goods shouldn't be underestimated. Working people are feeling this every day at the checkouts and when the bills come through the door. It's only right we take a look to see what's fueling these rises and what can be done about it. And a tip of the cap to the union movement for taking action on this, you know, Alan Fells is by no means... um, a, a trade unionist. He's not a former secretary of a trade union. Yeah, I wouldn't call him a red. No, he and he's written a piece in uh, the boss's pamphlet um, to to sort of reassure the bosses, if you like, that th- this is about genuinely looking at uh, where there is price gouging going on. We shouldn't underestimate the impact that price gouging has on small business, in particular, if. Power companies, gas companies, tra- um, coals and Woolworths are price gouging. That has an impact on smaller businesses who don't have the power in the market to, to get a better price. And, you know, I find it really interesting that we've gone in the space of the last sort of six months from a position where the Reserve Bank and the boss's pamphlet were denying that profits were driving inflation to 
even the Reserve Bank, I mean, yes, after the Europeans and yes, after the Americans and yes, even after that former liberal turned socialist Matthias Corman at the OECD, but eventually even, even the grand wizards at the Reserve Bank had come to the conclusion that there is some marginal uh, overpricing going on. A bit of marginal overpricing. Which, of course... You know, is try really, that one at the supermarket. Yeah, yeah. This is a bit of marginal overpricing, Bev. Alan Fells quoted Frank. I think we've got some marginal overpricing. Alan Fells quoted them in his article as saying that that the RBA has acknowledged that they are quote indexing their prices either implicitly or directly to past inflation, mm. uh, which is a which is a very polite uh, way of saying that they're price gouging. Um, <laughs> And, and that's the thing, right? So he's he's going to look at this. He's holding a public e- hearings. Uh, there's going to be uh, discussion papers. There's going to be recommendations. Go to the ACTU. Obviously, you know, I'm a former employee of the ACTU. I can tell you they, they have a rigorous policy process. I think they have a Congress coming up next year. I would imagine that whatever policies uh, this comes forward with will end up as part of their policy platform. Engage the democratic process. Submit your story to the inquiry. Let people who care about what happens to you know what's going on in your life and do something about it. Absolutely. You you know. How many good men? (laughs) Well, that's good because democracy is not a spectator sport. I'm into democracy. I'm pro. And this is this is a really good move. It's a democratic move. It's great to see the union movement uh, getting uh, involved in, and, and not for the first time, right? So I'm not saying this, oh, you know, finally. I'm saying continuing and, and stepping up even more in the economic space because fundamentally when working people are being price gouged and companies are reaping record profits, that is hurting working people, and you can do so much with direct workplace negotiation and, and wage agreements, uh, but you also need policy settings. It's one of the many tools that working people have, which is to come together and get policy changed so that it benefits them and not price gouges. I'm really So join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow. Go to the uh, ACT website. Find the link there. Uh, We'll post it in the socials. A reminder that joining a union is a tax deduction. That's right. It's tax time. Don't forget. Ben, talking about people who probably should have got a little less involved in one part of their job and a little more involved in another part. Talking about Peter Dutton. We're talking about Peter Dutton. Uh... Because Peter Dutton, as it turns out, and it's all coming out, right, and it was bound to. After a decade of being sitting at the right hand of Morrison, um, or was it the far right hand? I always get those confused. Far right hand of Scott Morrison, that's a hell of a hand. It it is emerged that Peter Dutton was... Emerged like a serpent from an egg. Well, Julian Hill, who's the chair of the Government Audit Committee, uh, the member for Bruce... And definitely one of Australia's great TikTok celebrities. Has... Uh, discovered, has uncovered, however you want to put it. Peeled back. That Peter Dutton was asked to pick 70 projects uh, by the department uh, under the Safer Communities Fund. What he did was 
he got out his, his spreadsheet of projects, 225 projects I think there were to pick from. They were ranked according to how they fit the criteria. Community bodies, community groups put in applications. They put in grant applications, you know, for CCTV cameras, uh, for safety lighting, for to try and make their communities safer, as you would expect from a safer communities fund. Well, of course, what did Peter Dutton do? Uh, did he rort it and direct the majority of funds to coalition seats? Indeed he did. Ah, oh, what a surprise. Absolute gold star there. Bit of a vote grab. Did he go for a bit of a vote grab? Not about serving the community, about serving your own political interest. He picked 53 projects. 48 were in coalition-held seats or target seats. Only five were in Labor seats. Um Julian Hill has accused uh, Dutton of politicising the grant process, of overlooking remote Indigenous communities, and there's an example that I'll bring up in a moment, um, in order to fund bowling greens in safe Liberal seats. And sure enough, look, I get... Wow, I wonder why Peter Dutton's opposed to The Voice. Yeah. What do you think, like, a staff permanent office in Canberra that speaks to representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people might have the kind of scrutiny that could oversee this kind of systemic uh, misallocation of resources? Do you reckon that might happen? Well, I think it might. And Marion... Scrimgore. Marion Scrimgore, uh, who's the member for Lingari... uh, it was quite um, quite uh, frustrated, disappointed, angry, all of those things combined when she was talking about this. And you can understand why. Um, there was a Aboriginal Shire Council in Cairns that missed out on funding for CCTV projects despite uh, get, being given a merit score of 75.75. Uh, and that's compared to projects that were funded that had merit scores uh, of 71, right? So, you, you know, you win on the merits of the, of the project, but the minister in his own handwriting scratches it out. And what uh, the member for Lingari has Didn't said... Didn't they do this with sports rorts? Indeed. Is this what they just did for 10 years? Like this is their version of governing. This is, is let's get all the money... But rather than have kind of a structuralised, systemised approach to the allocation of it based on need, <laughs> imagine, yeah. what we're just going to do is get out the whiteboard, get out some colour-coded markers and work out who we who we personally like the most and get the most electoral value out of and just give them the money. Absolutely. And look, That's not how government is supposed to work, by the way, everyone. No. That is not how it's supposed to work. And we're seeing, we're seeing the uh, repercussions of this, right, with the issue around consultancy, and the hollowing out of the public service. But I want to quote the member for Lingari here because these are these are powerful words, right? And they are about Peter Dutton and they speak to the character of the man or the lack of character of the man. He's not a monster because they're my favourite. Well, I think maybe he is a bit more of a monster than his wife thinks because these, this is the quote. I mean, she would, wouldn't she? Yeah. This is the quote. This is a man who gets on a plane to show up for the TV cameras and pretends he's concerned about Aboriginal communities and crime but who did nothing. He was a senior minister for nine Nine years in a government that did nothing, who didn't care for 10 years and continues not to care. They have no solutions to the problem. Those communities have talked about crime prevention, but they were up against it. Our government has put $250 million into Central Australia. Now, you can sense the frustration that these are communities that 
on the surface of it, Peter Dutton is happy to use as a as a as a press prop, uh, as a background for a Sky News uh, press conference. But when a push comes to shove, he'd rather fund CCTV cameras on bowling greens in Turak or the North Shore than to fund safety lighting in in remote indigenous communities. Okay, and let's talk about that. So it's a grant application process. Yeah. So the communities themselves That's right. have community, identified yeah. what they know their safety and security priorities yep. are and they've worked on that through a community-based process. Yeah, absolutely. Identifying what they need. Yeah. Mm. That's been denied by Peter Dutton, who, of course, is more interested in, you know, the community organisation of an eastern suburbs bowling green. Yeah, that's right? exactly And then is. has the temerity to turn around to the Australian people and go, oh, well, Indigenous people just can't govern themselves. It's There's a word... There's a word that represents that attitude. And I'm not going to say it because I just want everyone listening to this program to just take a moment and think for themselves what that word might be and why it fits Mr Dutton so neatly. Because talking of governing themselves, the Department of Home Affairs under Minister Dutton... Words I never want to hear again. Yeah, and hopefully words we will never have to hear again. Uh, but there's been a, an expose. 60 Minutes, uh, Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, uh, have done a, an expose called Home Truths. Uh, and it's been quite shocking, the revelations. you know. And there's some detail about whether Dutton was briefed or not briefed and when he was briefed and what he was briefed about and how much detail he was briefed and him claiming not to have been briefed in enough detail to know. He's not a monster. But at the end of the day, he was the minister. He was the minister. And and the reality... These so are it's the, his job to take responsibility. That is actually your job as a minister. And the, and the actual... Events, right? So the actual events that took place while he was minister. Very subtle dog handover going on there. Was that a, a, a man with whom his department signed a contract for supply in uh, in Nauru uh, was one month later arrested on charges of bribery uh, and later uh, pled guilty and was convicted. Uh, there are he, the, the this the, this man's company was paid nine point three million dollars of taxpayers' money by the Department of Home Affairs while it was run by Peter Dutton. There the are just example after example in this expose, and. I don't. I don't like to uh, suggest people read articles outside of uh, the masthead that you write for the Guardian. Very fine masthead, but this expose is really worth having a look at because the detail is quite disturbing. We're talking about multi-million-dollar payments to businesses controlled by politicians in foreign countries. Uh, there are companies. Broad Spectrum, Canstruct. Canstruct, which is a Queensland-based family company, uh, was paid $1.82 billion over five years to run the Nauru Centre after Broad Spectrum pulled out following Broad Spectrum's management going backwards and forwards over their concerns about the nature of how they were being asked to operate 
and not feeling they were getting uh, appropriate answers from the department around what they should do in relation to certain payments or requests for payments or requests to use certain contractors. Like it's all very murky. Uh, the articles go through it in quite some detail. Uh, this is from the article, the pressure on home affairs and its Australian League contractors to, to use um, Nauruvian subcontractors was frequent and longstanding. Leaked emails from within home affairs uh, contractor board spectrum reveal that in his capacity as Nauru's Justice Department Secretary in 2015, uh, an Enigma warned board spectrum's import license would be revoked. Uh, the investigation reveals that uh, the the politicians were then paid uh, money. They were given contracts for companies they controlled from these Australian-based uh, or Australian-contracted companies who then subcontracted to these uh, sums totaling several millions of dollars, essentially of Australian taxpayer money being funneled through some of these companies to these uh, subcontractors, lots of leaked emails, lots of uh, suggestion about a lack of value for money. In some cases, people being very clear, in one case, very clearly saying the minister's getting a 45% margin, suggest we go back and uh, put forward a 2 or $3 reduction in the price of water, bottled water being charged for $12 a bottle, these sorts of things, like quite significant uh, markups that, you know, don't hold up to scrutiny. And these reports were first being made in 2017, right? So this was coming out. This has been coming out now for some time. Uh, Pizzullo, who uh, was the Home Affairs Secretary in 2019, said, we're not aware of any demonstrable instances of likely, possible, or reasonably suspected corruption. We're not aware. Of course, in 2020, the uh, uh, contractor pled guilty to bribing officials. So yeah, but they, they weren't aware. They weren't aware. He maintained. Throughout- I mean, surely somewhere else someone's aware. They can be aware. We don't need to be aware. And look, Pizzullo continues to say, and this is a quote, I've always acted with integrity. Dutton denies having any knowledge. Dutton denies that there were any problems. So who's in charge, Peter? So who's in charge? You want to be, like, this is what I love. He wants to be prime minister of this country, but Mm. he wants to admit absolutely no responsibility for anything he did when he was an actual cabinet minister. Doesn't want to take any, does he understand the job of prime minister is to take responsibility for the whole country? He's very keen to make that point about Anthony Albanese. Absolutely anything that happens in this country at the moment. And the way liberals go on about Daniel Andrews, who apparently controls the Chinese Communist Party with his mind, who can summon earthquakes, you know, like the amazing. Cancel the Commonwealth Games in Canada. He can cancel the Commonwealth Games in Canada. He can raise the dead and send them back. You know, Daniel Andrews, woo! He's like he's like a living planet that radiates psychic Unicron. energy. Yeah, it's it is completely amazing. And Solaris, he's definitely Daniel Andrews is Solaris. And that was just so many references of yeah, my education just really justified itself. However, they're always very keen, the Liberals, to tell us that, you know, Labor responsibility for Labor's responsible for milk being sour and a failure of a wheat yield. But 
actual cabinet minister, minister for like basically everything that involves wearing a fascisty uniform, and Peter Dutton wasn't aware of what was going on. It's, it's it just really... happened. Oh, who was making these decisions? Who was signing off on them? We don't know. And and this is this is the... so. What were you doing, Pete? And this is the point, right? Bit of knitting. We had the Morrison era, uh, you know, which started really under Abbott and continued right through until uh, the election in 2022. The Morrison era began under Howard, you and I both know. Yeah, where, well, I mean, even to, I mean, I don't like John Howard. He's not someone that I look back on fondly. But there was a point in John Howard's prime ministership where he did make ministers take responsibility. You know, Abbott abandoned that principle pretty early on. Morrison obviously completely abandoned it. Dutton, being a minister in that time, has never taken responsibility for anything. He doesn't take responsibility for the things he says. He doesn't take responsibility for the things he does. He certainly doesn't take responsibility for things that happened in the ministry he was in charge of, a ministry that he wanted created, a ministry that he wanted to expand, a ministry that he wanted to have more power and that he turned into, as you say, a somewhat fascist uniform. He joined the parachute just for the fascist uniform. Yep. It's a quite phenomenal display of arrogance. I wonder if it's because they believe in the deep state. You know how there's this no, thing on, I, the, I don't on think... the hard right, how they believe there's a secret government that runs everything? And do they think that also applies to them? It's like, never mind, I don't have to be aware. Secret government's doing everything. Never get high on your own supply. I think that's my point here. I think it's the the bad guys never think they're the bad guys. And I think these people... I think these people fundamentally embody that. I think they are engaged in the the longest uh, Tory tradition in human history, and that is the self-justification of unjustifiable greed and accumulation of power. I'm so into you. And, and what Peter Dutton is doing around these issues uh, as they come out around the voice, for example, is just an extension of that. And I recommend that you listen to us talk about this, that particular incident around the, oh, well, you know, we're only we're only opposed to the voice because it's in our political interest. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not like anybody expects you to be committed to a bright, you know, vision of a future Australia. I mean, I'm too old. But um, I've seen it all. But we talked about this on the week on Wednesday on our Sunday weekend wrap episode, which I joined Ben yeah. for. And it just breaks my heart. I mean, I love this country, Ben. Like, I absolutely love being Australian and I love, you know, the the values that Australians share, our community values that come from, you know, the way that we wrestle with the things that we've done wrong and the way that we try and account for it and, you know, these values of fairness and equality that however imperfectly we strive towards. Mm. And the contempt that Peter Dutton and co have for those values, for this country, for our our uniqueness as a people, just it actually breaks my heart. Yeah, look, I, I'm glad they're in opposition and I hope they're in opposition for a very, very long time. Uh, and people need to be aware that this is this is what happens. You know, and and it happened for a long time. It wasn't like oh, they were in power for ten years and then they started to be a bit dodgy. They were in power for a couple of years and they were handing out money left, right, and centre, uh, and they were doing it on a political basis. Uh, and quite frankly, they take no responsibility, even after the fact. And we've seen that there's a, Alan Tudge has a piece in the Spectator today where he 
where he tries to diminish the findings of the Robodet Royal Commission and says that the true shame of it is that it undermines welfare compliance. Like, it is just... That's what he drew from that. And he has written an article That's about what it. you drew from it, Ellen. These people have no shame. They have no compassion. They are, frankly, in my view, un-Australian. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not taking moral guidance from Ellen Tudge. That's just not a thing I'm ever going to do. No. get Ellen Tudge and Peter Dutton can get in the same boat and... Sail away. Sail away. Look, let's have some good news. I love good news. Because this is good news and it's good Australian news. <laughs> And it's good Australian environmental news. Oh, my God, my three favourite types. I know, because we're going to go the good news, and then, of course, we will give our shout-outs to our cadre and extend the reach supporters. But, Van, the good news is about quals. You absolutely know how to make me love you. You really do. Because who doesn't love quals? I love quals. Everyone loves quals. You know I love quals, right? Well, yeah. And Jeremy's is doing an extremely cute qual-like noise. <laughs> <laughs> That was beautifully timed, Jim. Absolutely immaculate. Did not edit that together. It's all one take. Uh, Western Australia is seeing the return of Western quolls to the wild after disappearing from the state over a hundred years ago. These are long. I love. I love the way some people write these things. I'm quoting here: These long-snouted furry mammals are part of Australia's large variety of predatory marsupials who raise their young in chest pouches live in burrows and dens, and hunt at night. So uh, 30 Western quolls were released earlier in the year, and they're already seeing, uh, we're already seeing them fan out, uh, settle in wide areas, reproduce. Uh, they're tagged, uh, so they're being able to see them uh, where they hunt. It's quite it's quite remarkable. I mean, I, I I just love the whole thing. Rewilding, man. Rewilding's where it's at. And a shout-out to our friend Sarah, who is secretly an American, um, who got to vote on a rewilding initiative in Colorado about the reintroduction of coyotes. That's right. And it's like, and that. this is happening all over the world. You know, these conservation efforts, if you put resources behind them, there are people who will do this work. There are people who are passionately dedicated to the qual and – with money, with resources, with structural encouragement and facilitation, we can actually bring back the things that we're in danger of losing. So thank you, qual protectors and advocates. Absolutely. And, look, you know, the really good news here is that these the qual is not alone. The, the, the qual is not alone. The, the qual is here with you. Fifteen mammals recently uh, have been uh, taken off the uh, uh, preservation list because of these rewilding efforts that have been going on right around the country. Um, tiny bandicoots, quolls, like it's just so good to see and we support it wholeheartedly, 100%. Get behind rewilding in your local area. So into it. Van. This show is always free to listen to, always free to download. We do weird and wacky things. We go to fringe festivals, talk to Miles Taylor, Trump whistleblower. We do election night coverages. We do all sorts of things. Shout out to our friend Stephen Donnelly from Socially Democratic, which is the machine version of this podcast. Ben and I talk policy and we talk theory. Stephen gets into the machinery of how elections are won, how parties are organised and all the bits you've got to put together in order to run the show. So we see ourselves as very complimentary in that way and if you haven't listened to his podcast, we recommend you check it out. Absolutely check it out. Um, But... 
this show has had nearly a million downloads. Oh, we're getting so close. Oh my god. We will get there. I think we will get there in the next few weeks. If the if if you listening to this continue to share, like, and just get the word out. Recommend, have a listening party. Absolutely. Leave a review if you've enjoyed it. If you haven't enjoyed it, don't bother. That's Send fine. Send Ben pictures of the coach of the Moroccan team who he happens to look exactly like. Yeah, I've been getting those a few. <laughs> but it's our there are people who do go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday who do make a contribution, sometimes just once off, sometimes a buck a week. Our, our extended reach supporters give us $10 a month and our cadre supporters give us $20 a month. That money goes into promoting the show, to broadening the audience. You right now might be listening to this because you clicked on an ad paid for by one of these great Great people, and we love to give them a shout-out. And, Van, you've got the list there. Okay, because I went to art school. Okay, Cadre, Mega Itchy, Saurus, Matt Trezee, Shamila Lacal, Ms. Dan Weir, Joe Lockery, Steph Corina, Baliat, Jen C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, and Coleman, at Ross Kenner, 888, Bronwyn Cockington, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gail Ferguson, Rebecca Fanning for Longman, Matthew Hadley, Colin Kelly, Ellie Vance, Mary M., Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti, at Anthony Balden, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Boris, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, at Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Bromman, Punchdunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hanai Honda, Matt Bush, Matt Richard Sands, Glenn Robbie, Brush Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cardwright, Leanne Chiggles, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Nurissa Simon, at Katagal, Laura Nash and Banjo, at Narunga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, and Louise Watson, slash Red, White, and Blue Lou. And our Extend the Reach supporters are. <sighs> Murray Budwell, Stuart Munn, Blagoya, Matthew Case, Marky Mark, at Bikembit, Adrian Valente, Mazritza at Calorie Dale 68, Frank Niehaus, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Retta Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bates, Shane Horsfall, Helen Murray, Buzzard 62, Jalen at McCallman, Jeremy Mal, Rosie Elliott, Lara at Robert Notfield 1, Michael Wiles, Sanj Kelly, Dorena Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron Tridragon, Daniel at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennell, Anna Uren, Melanie Dinning, Jody A. Not on Twitter, Penelope Judge, Shane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope. S. Wood at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, someone, Vita W, Nadia Hannon, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham, Oxley, Tracy, Lucas, Sandy Honan, Akel Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah Elian and Andrew Ivers Billet, Andrew Bryan, Peter OC, Linda, Sam Hadid, Keep Adders and Lizette, Twinkle, Bunkum, Basher, Lizette Twizzle, sorry, Bunkum, Basher, Katie Ward at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Melgan at Sun, not Sandy B and Renee McGee. And can I just say, every week, Ben, I appreciate your attitude towards capitalisation. It just, it brings a, a level of excitement to my life, the chaos and randomness of the way that you punctuate. People type in their names the way people type in their names. So, folks, if you want to make it easy on Van... <laughs> Type your name in properly. Uh, but look, we really appreciate all the support. Obviously, you know, we continue to be an independent podcast. Uh, podcasting in this country has is now overtaken per capita. More people listen to podcasts in this country than any country in the world. The growth has been phenomenal. We- and we're hanging in there as an independent podcast, not aligned to a master, not even the one that I write for. So it is absolutely amazing that you guys keep turning up and keep supporting us and keep listening. And we're going to keep going. We love it. We love sitting down in the chaos <laughs> of our house at the moment with our insane dog having an adder about social policy and macroeconomics. We absolutely live for it. Don't forget to join us on Sunday for the weekend wrap. But until then, love you, Vanny. Oh, I love you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.